willing to open up in prayer for us. Jeremy. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 10, and last week we looked at uh, section 1 of chapter 10 and didn't quite get through it. It ended up being a topic on parenting to a large degree, which is good, but we're going to pick up there again, and I'm trying to remember, maybe some of you guys remember where we left off, but I think it was with the passage uh, number 4 about taking away a heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Is that correct? Does that match everyone else's memory? We did that passage, okay? Okay, so we'll read, the, we'll read the section here again, and then that's where we will pick it up, unless someone corrects me beyond that. In God's appointed and acceptable time, he is pleased to call effectually by his word and spirit those whom he has predestined to life. He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death, to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. He takes away their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh. He renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does this all in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Okay, so there we see both both guardrails. This is God's work. God gets the glory, and yet this isn't compulsion. This isn't coercion. This is being made willing. This is being given a new heart that wants to come, and that does freely and happily come to the Lord Jesus. So both are true. And if no one corrects me that we left off at Ezekiel 36, then we'll pick up on note number five here. So we'll read from, from footnote four, and then we'll look at the texts. Okay, so he renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. And who wants to take Deuteronomy 30, verse 6? Volunteer for Deuteronomy 30. Howard. Ezekiel 36, 27. Who wants to take that? Jeremy. And then Ephesians 1, 19. Who wants to take that? Tim. All right, so go ahead, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Okay, good. So we see there, well, a couple things. One is God is doing this, and we also see the spiritual reality behind circumcision here. Right? Circumcision was uh, a right that was given to the little boys in Israel, uh, not because it did something, but because it signified something. And in the New Testament, we see that not all who are circumcised are circumcised, right? Uh, in a physical sense. The circumcision is a symbol of, I think, several things, one of which is a reminder on a boy's body that he has obligations to the past and to the future, he comes from fathers and he is siring children after him. So there is a reminder on the boys of Israel every day that they have to be reminded they owe a debt that they did not choose. Okay, this is important. Uh, and this is one of actually the, the key differences between a conservative mindset and a liberal mindset is in a conservative mindset, we have room for obligations that we did not choose. Uh, and that is getting pushed to greater and greater extremities as we start talking about choosing our gender. In a biblical conception, there's many moral responsibilities that you just show up here with that you did not choose. I did not choose who my parents were. I did not choose to be a boy. I did not choose my nation of birth. I, there's lots of things I didn't choose, and I'm obligated to be obedient to the Lord in all of them. Okay? I got my dad's name, I got my grandpa's name, I got my great-grandpa's name, and I owe all of them a great debt. 
And I also owe a great debt to the children that have not yet been born for my family. Okay? We need to start thinking long uh, term. And circumcision is a good reminder for these boys. You came from somewhere, and life is flowing out of you. Okay? And you owe a debt, a covenantal debt, to those who are going to come after you. So you must behave. And further to that, circumcision is a literal cutting away. And when God makes covenants in the Old Testament, it often, the, the Hebrew word is, deals with cutting. God cuts a covenant. When covenants happen, blood is spilt. Okay? Either of an animal or on a boy's own body. Blood is being spilt uh, to remind you, if, if you disobey the terms of this covenant, you too will be cut away. Just like that skin was cut away. Okay? So there's a threat in that skin being cut away. You too can be cut off if you don't uh, obey. And lastly, this one's a little bit speculative, but I found it interesting. Who's ever encountered, if you've read through your Old Testament, and you're a Jewish woman, and you give birth to a little girl, and you have to stay away from the corporate worship for X amount of days. And if you give birth to a little boy, it's shorter. Okay? Is that sexism? I was talking with Jeremy this morning about Jim Jordan, and Jim Jordan suggested something very interesting here. The little girls, the baby girls, could go into the temple sooner than the little boys could because the boys were unclean because of their circumcision. He has suggested maybe there is a little echo of boys taking headship and responsibility here already. The boys are taking some time off of mom's unclean period (laughs) before she can go to the temple because the time that the boys have to stay away, when you add that to mom's shortened time, it, it equals the same time that mom has to stay away for little girls. So in circumcision, he's suggesting, in terms of ritual worship purity, that these little boys are already taking, they're taking a debt, they're taking a weight off their mother's shoulders. They're helping their mom get back in quicker. That's a little bit of speculation, but you do the math and it does add up. It's an interesting idea. But circumcision is a big theme, as you know, in the Old Testament. It symbolizes a new heart. It symbolizes the new covenant. And of course, we don't have to circumcise our little boys anymore. We're certainly free to, but we don't need to. Okay? Because the reality is a heart that has been cut in the New Covenant. Discussion on this. Ron? I'm speaking of people who are visibly part of the people of God, but are not really part of the people of God. Right? So let's say false professors. Right? So not all who descended from Abram are Abram. Right? Not all who descend from Israel are Israel. There's, there's true Israel inside the, the ethnic and national bounds of Israel. There's a true Israel in there. Right? But just because your last name starts with Bar something doesn't, doesn't mean you're a true Israelite. Right? So, so you see that reality vaguely even in the Old Covenant. It was actually never about ethnicity. Um, because even in Israel, have you ever noticed how many non-Jewish people come into Israel and Jewish people go out? Like even in the Old Testament, it's not actually pure ethnicity. It's, there's a visible people that's somewhat fluid um, and within there, there's, there's the true people of God. More discussion on this. Jeremy. Yeah, and there's lots of that, right? There's lots of non-Jewish people who get grafted into the people of God, right? Rahab, um, and there's others like that. Ruth, right? There, there's lots of outsiders that God lets in, yeah, and they're true Israelites even though they don't descend from that genetic pool. Okay, let's keep going then. Uh, who had Ezekiel 36, 27? Jeremy, go ahead and read that. Okay, so again, this new reality is not an excuse to sin, okay, but rather what the, what's the fruit here, okay, we'll walk in the statutes, I'm careful to obey my rules, so a new heart does new things, 
We can't just say, yeah, I just, I just had a quiet time with Jesus and so I'm good to go now and I can live however I want. If that's your attitude, that's not evidence that there's a new heart in there. Okay? New hearts get to work. Okay? So this is not cheap grace. I forget who said it. Grace is, grace is not cheap, but it is free. Okay? Discussion on that. Does that make sense? New hearts do new things. Okay, you can't profess Christ while your lifestyle says you have nothing to do with him. Yeah. Yes, the anti-lordship people have a big problem. Um, because there's always obedience flows out. And so what Jeremy's talking about is a controversy that I think we brought up before. It was largely in the 80s. It's how John MacArthur made his name was by pushing back very, very hard against uh, a school of thought called dispensationalism, which, long story short, ended up with people who could make a profession of faith. You sign a card, you walk to the altar, whatever, at an altar call. You become a Christian, and because they correctly saw that Christians can't lose their justification, they assume every decision was a real one. And so if you went to camp and you had a camp experience when you were six and you have lived an ungodly life ever since, the anti-lordship people would say, well, no, he made a decision. He's, he's sealed. He's good. Okay? Um, and it, John MacArthur broke ranks with many at that time and wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, pushing back against that idea that you can have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. And it, and it was presented, and I even remember people talking that way. You know, so-and-so has accepted Jesus as Savior, but has he accepted him as Lord yet, right? Like there's this two-stage salvation. You can be justified just by the skin of your teeth, but then the spiritual Christians will move on to accepting Jesus as Lord. And the carnal Christians will just stay with their sinful lifestyle, and all they got was salvation. It doesn't work that way. You can't get just salvation from the Lord. When you get salvation, you get good works that come as a result. And if the good works never come there is legitimate reason to question whether the first step happened, okay? You can't have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. He's a, he's a package deal. Let's keep going here. Uh, who had Ephesians 1.19? Tim, you had that one, right? Okay, if that makes more sense, then do that. Very good. Okay, so you see the same thing here. God's spirit at work transforming uh, the whole person. Okay, questions on that? Discussion on that? Have we teased it all out? More to discuss? Then let's keep going. Okay. Yet he does all this in such a way that they come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. And there we have Psalm 110.3. Who wants to take that? Okay, Lynn. Okay, and who wants to take Song of Solomon 1 verse 4? Hang on. Okay. So go ahead, Kaylin. Psalm 110.3. Okay. So again, these people are coming freely. Does it sound like they're being kicked and pulled and dragged against their will? No. No one is dragged into the kingdom kicking and screaming. They come willingly because they have a new heart that wants to come. Okay? No one is dragged against their wishes. They are made willing. And then Song of Solomon 1 verse 4. Inga. Okay, so again, what do you see there, Inga? Do you see compulsion or do you see joy? Yep, 
for sure. I mean, the king is the, the headline act here, right? He has brought me into his chambers and will rejoice in you, extol your love. Okay? Rightly do we love you, but the people doing the worshiping want to be there. This woman wants to be in the presence of the king. Okay, so that is section one on effectual calling. More discussion on this. Have we squeezed the last juice out of this orange? Then let's keep moving. Okay, section two. This effectual call flows from God's free and gracious special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. There's a big claim. Okay? The same power that raised Christ from the dead breathes life into dead sinners and makes them alive. This is supernatural a hymn writer might even say wonder-working power in the blood, okay? Someone should write something like that. That actually flows pretty good, okay? So let's break this into pieces and then look at it again, okay? This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything foreseen in those called. Neither does the call arise from any action or power or action on their part. Who wants to read 2 Timothy 1 verse 9? Who's got that? We're slow with volunteers here today. I'm going to start volunteering people. Howard? Okay. Uh, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. And then Ephesians 2 8. Don? Okay. Okay. So... Again, the emphasis here is put clearly on the work of God in this. Okay, Ephesians 2, verse 8. Don? Okay, there we'll do a little bit, I won't say much on this, but on that, there's always discussion here when it says... Um, when it says on the second part of that verse, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. People sometimes want, okay, well, what's the this? What's the this that is not your own doing but is the gift of God? And some will say, well, no, it's not uh, the faith that is the gift. It's just the outcome of the faith. So the faith is still something you have to do. So you do the faith and then the gift that God gives you in exchange for that gift of producing faith in yourself is that he gives the gift of salvation. But the gendered language here does not work that way. The this is in the neutral form. Okay? And grace and faith are masculine uh, and uh, feminine in there. So the this being neutered, sorry to get caught in grammar here, but this, you may come across this, means the whole package. It's referring to the whole package. The grace, the salvation, and the faith is the gift that you get. The whole package is gift, including the faith that grafts you in uh, to that. And the, the Greek is quite clear on that, that it's the whole package that's being discussed there that is gift. Discussion on that. Has anyone encountered that one? That they're saying, well, it's just this part that's the gift, the other part is the condition that you produce on your own? Keith? The Calvinists are making faith a work. That's a mistake in theology 101. That's grade two theology. He needs to pass first. 
Interesting. Okay, so he does his Greek right. <laughs> He's just misunderstanding what people mean then, maybe. That's bizarre. Interesting. All right. I think this is a pretty explicit faith is not a work. Well, I guess we could say it is. It's a work of God. But it's certainly not a work we can muster up. Okay, so you say, okay, that would make more sense. That we do muster it up, but that wouldn't be a work if we did muster it up on our own. But then he'll grant that the Greek doesn't allow that. Okay. I haven't watched it. I don't. That's interesting. Okay. Because Mike Winger is generally quite good on a lot of things. But. All right. More discussion on this. As we go through this, are the pieces starting to fall into place? Yes? No? Starting? Wrapping it up? Tying a bow on it? Yes. Yeah, well, and in uh, Timothy, I believe, it says, God may too grant them repentance. God may grant them repentance, right? The repentance is a gift from God. And I think the uniform testimony of Scripture is quite clear on that. Then let's keep going. Okay, um, what's that? Yeah, yeah. it's hard to get around, it, it, it's hard to read carefully and say faith is what I contribute, right? Faith is the, the, the toonie I put into the pop machine and then I press the button and then God gives me a pop can of salvation as a gift. Well, that's not a gift. That's an exchange. <laughs> okay? If, if mom's birthday is coming up, I like using this analogy because I think it actually paints it well. If mom's birthday is coming up and the six-year-old wants to honor mom and dad goes to the flower store with the kid, gives the kid 20 bucks to spend on mom so that the kid has a gift to give back to the parents, that's how this works. God puts the 20 in your hand so that you are grafted into this gift. It's, it's, faith is a gift. Faith is not something we can muster up with our free will. Faith frees our will. Yep, Margaret. So everyone's right in that exchange, right? The children did come because they wanted to. What they don't understand was there was another step that got them (laughs) to want to, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think, well, I think it was actually John MacArthur talked about this. You know, this seems like a mystery. Think of the, you know, there's this doorway to heaven, and on our side of it, we look at it, and it says, all who, whosoever wills may come. True. Yes. And on God's side, it says, predestined from before the foundation of the earth. Okay? We have to live with that. That's the way it, that's the way it works. Whosoever wills may come. Okay? Uh, and, and sometimes John 3.16 is thrown out. Okay? Checkmate everyone after the Reformation. Right? For God so loved the world that whosoever wills may come. And, right. Correct. <laughs> Whosoever wills may come. I, I've got a question for you. <laughs> who are those people? Who are those who will to come? Right? These, these are both, we have to hold 
all of Scripture together. We can't lop off some verses to make room for other verses. We're, we want to be faithful to every verse. Yeah, so that's a good point. They're staying in their default state. Yeah. Yep. Nope. Yeah, that's problem. You know, popular verses will get you. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta keep reading, right? What, what's what's around it as well. Okay. Let's keep going here. Oh yeah, no no good. Sorry. Yeah, Evangeline. That's, and that's an important point. And we've talked about that here as well sometimes, right? With this mindset of what's called hyper-Calvinism. It's like, okay, well, I'll just stand here and do nothing. And then I'll just get zapped into the kingdom through some bizarre process without hearing the gospel, without normal means, right? What, it, so, so <laughs> it's good. We need to discuss those things. No, and, and I'm trying to understand it myself. Because it's, it, it is a distortion. Um, and we want to avoid distortions on both sides here. But when we, when we talk about this, and even the way we related it to child rearing last week, I think that's an important point. We want it to feel as natural as possible for our children to feel <laughs> like this, is, this isn't some gargantuan step. This is God gave you to Christian parents we're raising you like Christians. We're teaching you the gospel. Um, we're, we're keeping that soil weed-free as best we can, right? And it just feels natural. And it's still God working in and through that. Because even for the parents to have the foresight and the effort to keep that soil weed-free, that too is a gift from God, right? It's all gift, top to bottom. But that doesn't mean we stand idly by waiting for thunder to come, right? We do the next thing, right? Don't, don't, don't pray for a ditch while you're leaning on a shovel, okay? The shovel's a gift, and God put it in your hands, and he gave you two arms, so get to work, right? Get, get to work, and, and after the work is done, you can look back and say, yes, this too was a gift from God, right? And, and he says that actually in Deuteronomy 8, I believe. Don't, you know, after I do all this for you guys, and you're going to, you know, your women are going to be pregnant. Your cattle are going to be fat. You're going to live in houses you didn't build. Your vineyards are going to have an abundance of wine. The barley harvest is going to be good. There's going to be bread. There's going to be fruit. It's going to be going good. Here's what you guys are going to be tempted to think. You're going to look at yourselves and say, look at the great wealth that my hands have gotten me. And God says, don't do that. Who gave you those hands? And who put it in your heart to plant those vineyards and to breed those cattle? Right? It's a gift, but there, that reaping and sowing principle is is equally is equally true. Yeah, and we're actually it was the uh, the parable of the soils that made me say we should do one more psalm because that is a doozy, and I didn't want that to fall on a <laughs> whatever on a, the wrong Sunday worth communion. So, but that is the soil analogy. That's that's an important metaphor because that. There is a real reaping and sowing principle in Scripture. Amen. More on this. Yannicka and then Tim. Yep. Amen. Yeah, and, and on that front, um, there's... there's Two doctrines that are especially criticized as saying they'll be anti-evangelism. One is Reformed theology, and another is an optimistic eschatology. People say, if you hold those two things, you're not going to, because you're just going to think it's a cakewalk and God's just going to do everything. Okay, read William Carey. 
Read Hudson Taylor. Read Adoniram Judson. What do these guys all have in common? They're all Calvinists, and they all see advance for the kingdom of God. That's actually what's motivating them. Say, okay, God has people all over the place. If the kingdom of God is going to conquer the map, we <laughs> get me on the first ship to China. I need to get going here. God's promised to do this. Get to work. Right? So you, you see that, whether it's the Reformation, whether it's the Great Awakening, whether it's the modern missions movement, it's fueled by this theology. This isn't a deterrent on this. It's fueled by this. Okay, God has people in China. Can you believe it, guys? We forgot about this. God has people in China. Go get them. Go get them. Hustle. Okay? Learn the language. Learn the culture. Get over there and do this. And you read these missionary biographies, and almost to a man, they're reformed in their thinking of salvation. And that's not that they're going then in spite of that. They're going because of that. Right? And you see that language in... 1 Corinthians, where Paul's getting discouraged, and he says that I stayed another 18 months because God had many people in this city. Okay, well, they weren't converted yet, because when Paul wrote this, he's discouraged, because no one's coming to the gospel. But because God has many people in Corinth, he says, okay, okay, I'll stay another 18 months. God has lots of people here, so I better, <laughs> I better stick with it, right? This is, understood correctly, this is a motivation, this is fuel for evangelism at least it ought to be. And if, it, if that doesn't seem natural, then we've got to keep, keep thinking about this in a, in a healthy and in a productive, fruitful way. Um, Tim. Yeah, so there's that reaping and sowing principle that's natural again, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah, we should never divorce the means from the ends. That's not a scriptural way to think. Means and ends are, are connected. More on this. Okay? If anyone tells you that this theology is contra-evangelism, point them to a long list of people who would frankly disagree with you, okay? And I'm talking people in the early church, people like Augustine, people like Athanasius, okay? If, if you do any church history stuff, you'll hear something about Athanasius defending the Trinity, and someone says, just give it up, Athanasius. The whole world is Arian. Everyone disagrees with your Trinitarian theology. The whole world is against Athanasius. And he says, okay, well, that just means then Athanasius is against the whole world, I like my odds. <laughs> right? I'm defending the Bible. I like my odds. And Athanasius won. Right? It, the Latin saying is Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the whole world. And guess what is presented in every orthodox statement of faith? Is the theology that Athanasius defended against the whole world. Okay? And he's victorious. Okay? It, that's this kind of, yeah, you know what? Yes, it's ten on one. So I like my odds. That's the kind of mindset Christians need to have uh, when, we're, when we're thinking about these things. And again, great evangelists through history. Whitfield, Edwards, Spurgeon, Bunyan. These guys thought this way. Keith. I'm not sure I'm understanding. Oh, okay. Okay, so if I'm understanding you correctly, if someone would find a novel interpretation of Scripture today... And they're going to go against the whole history of the church on that. Your money is on the church rather than on this individual. And I'd say that's the right instinct. So how do we square that with Athanasius? I think he was with the church in history. But what happens is through the history of the church, 
different things have been disputed at different times. And we actually, this is an important thing here, we make significant headway in those dark moments when things are under dispute. So the very first dispute was who is Christ? Okay? Who is the God-man? And so the, the, the church spent lots of energy on that. They weren't discussing justification. They weren't discussing church polity. They weren't discussing baptism. The, the controversy of the day is who is this God-man? Who is he? Right, and so as those things get on, well, let's even pick an easier one. Uh, it would feel today, if you refuse to budge on the sexual revolution, it feels like we're against the whole world. And in a sense, we are. And you'll go all through church history, and I can't find a single early church father, reformer, or Puritan who has said one word on transgenderism. Okay, here's our moment. Here's our moment. This is what's under attack. The church is going to figure this out. We will. And in 500 years, our theology of man and woman will be vastly more articulate than it is right now. Because someone's going to get beaten and bruised right now over this. Okay? That's how it was with the Trinity and Christology in the early church. Okay? It's not that the previous guys didn't believe what Athanasius believed about the Trinity. It just wasn't, it hadn't been hammered out yet. Okay? The same thing, let's say, at the Reformation time about justification. They weren't doing anything new. You go back and you read the old guys and they just assumed this, but they didn't talk about it a lot because that's not where the fight was happening. Right? The battle was happening somewhere else. But Luther and Calvin weren't breaking new ground. They could go back to the fathers and say, well, clearly this is the assumption they were working with. I think that's a challenge for us today. I really do. And I am not in favor of all going back to Mother Rome. The problem, okay, and first of all, 100% of non-denominational churches, this is important, are Baptist churches. Okay? Non-denominational is just another way of saying Baptist. They, they clearly belong with a certain stream of church history. Their, their non-tradition is a very specific tradition. Okay? That, and their tradition is, we don't have a tradition, which is their tradition. Okay? There is no such thing as a non-denominational church. There's just churches that govern without a, without a hierarchy. But they all come from somewhere, and they all have ideas. But because the church is as spread out as it is, it would be very hard today to call a council of Nicaea and say, okay, we've got to get this figured out. I think it's still happening. We've got statements. The Danvers, well, okay... More recently, uh, us as elders, we're going through... His, who's ever heard of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy? Okay? This is like a modern creed. It happened in 1978. Okay? So the way my mind works, that's very recent history. Okay? Um, it's a modern creed. Because liberalism was destroying the seminaries, attacking the inerrancy of Scripture. So a bunch of people got together. This is what put R.C. Sproul on the map. He spearheaded this thing, and then J.I. Packer wrote it. A um, bunch of guys got together in Chicago, said, we need to know what evangelicals are saying about Scripture. And they did it. And we've, we are getting statements like that today about social justice and about sexuality and about manhood and womanhood. There's a Danvers statement on biblical manhood and womanhood, which I think is something like that in our day that's helping to define these things in an age of confusion. And because I'm not a pessimist, I do think this could potentially be long-term work that's going to help clarify for years to come. People will be able to look back at these documents and say, okay, back there in the 2000s, when this was under fire, these, are, these evangelicals got together and they wrote this and they, they hammered out what they, what they meant and what they didn't mean. So I, I don't know if I'm understanding properly. I think that is still happening at some level. And clarity is on its way. I think. Can I think about that? 
<laughs> There's pros and cons. If, if you are living in conservative times, without question, the best form of church government is Presbyterianism. As long as everyone's committed, committed to conservatism. Because things move very slowly in Presbyterianism, and they are meant to. So if everyone's an Orthodox Christian, that's the best form of church government. We don't live in those times, so I would say Baptistic government is the best. Congregational government. Because you can turn a church around much faster than you can turn a denomination around. But, and I guess you could say, well, yeah, there's pros and cons. I'm not sure I want to commit to an answer. Baptist churches can turn on a dime much faster. You can almost never bring a Presbyterian church back to life. It's almost impossible. Yeah, well, COVID presented us with an opportunity for that. There's, there's that one, and there's also the Niagara Declaration, which was a Canadian document that a bunch of churches got together uh, to work on. So these things, are, they keep happening, and, and I think there's potential for, for clarity and for growth in that. Sean? Okay, so that is a form of kind of actually Presbyterianism, is breaking things up into regions. And then pastors from local churches meet in regions or presbyteries, or the Dutch call them consistory. Well, no, consistory is just the local church. Synod, right? Or classes? Classes is bigger than synod, right? Synod is big, okay. And in Presbyterianism, you've got your, your presbytery, and then you've got your synod, and then you've got your assembly, and then your general assembly. So there's these layers of, of government. And it works quite good if it's working as it's designed to. Because then you'd say, you know what, there's a bunch of like-minded churches in southeastern Manitoba. Each one is, you know, minding their own biscuits. But then we're going to get together and we're going to discuss the things that are happening in our area. And we're going to rely on each other's wisdom. And then maybe every other year, all the churches in western Canada are going to get together to do the same. And then maybe once every five years, all of Canada is going to do that. If that works well, it's actually, I think there's lots of wisdom in that kind of government. And in an unofficial way, that is happening with some of the churches that we have relationships with. Not in an authoritative way, but just sharing, you know, this came up here. How do you guys deal with that? How do you deal with that? And in an ideal world, and I think we're a long way off from this. In an ideal world, we wouldn't be driving past each other to go to church. Trinity Fellowship, has its flag planted here, and within 10 miles, that's who comes here, okay? And Cornerstone has their flag planted in Steinbeck, and within so many miles, you do that. That's how, like a parish system, that would be best and healthiest. But that depends on healthy churches being everywhere, and that's not the case. So we're, it, it's an interesting time, because people have to make sacrifices to find healthy churches. And I know lots of people who drive an hour to go to church because that's how long it takes to get to a church that's preaching the Bible. And it's it's unfortunate, but that's where we're at. Yep, keep going.
Can everyone understand what Sean is saying? There, there is wisdom there. And a lot of people are a little bit gun-shy about denominationalism because denominations almost always keep moving left, 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 left. Because you're trying to keep everyone together, which means lowest common denominator. Oh, well, that church just ordained a woman. Well, it's not a big deal. Like, we're not going to do that here. We're, you know, uh, well, that church, you know, that lady pastor's now at Steinbeck Pride. Well, yeah, okay, but it's not, a, like, it's not that big a deal. Like, she's not, she's not our pastor, right? And you just, you keep compromising to hold the machinery together. And people are gun-shy about that. But I absolutely agree. If it's just divide and conquer and every church is standing on its own, there's no molecular strength <laughs> holding you together. And it is easy to divide and conquer. And that happened during COVID. Name me one denomination that just planted their flag and said, it's important to me. Churches did it, Christians did it, pastors did it. The CREC in the States is a denomination that did it. That's the only denomination that I know of. And the PCA, it's a conservative Presbyterian denomination, came later and said, okay, this is enough. And the Southern Baptists kind of at the end, as much as they could with their system, said, it's time to be in church again. It's hard to do that as a denomination. So there's, and that's why I, I personally think a kind of Presbyterianism is wise, not top-down governance, but let's talk to each other. Let's, it is nice if you can send a spokesman out for a group, if you can, but that's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. But I, yeah, and, and those conversations are happening. And in fact, there, you know, there's some that, of the guys that I talk to that are very gun-shy about forming something, and there's some that say this is actually very important that we form something more official with this association so that we're clearly together, and I don't know where that's going to go. But those conversations are happening. Yeah, congregationalism doesn't mean everybody votes on everything. Congregationalism means local churches have the final say. And I think that's also wise. And that is a Baptist distinctive. Is eat, people hear congregationalism and they think, okay, so we have to have a congregational vote about whether we put a light in the parking lot? No, no. It means the local church does that. And it might do it through her elders. Or it might do it through something else. But it's the local church that decides. It's not a denomination. So you can have elder-led congregational governance, which is what we have here. Keith, and then we should bring it in. Yeah, 51% is correct. Yeah. No, and there's flaws in everything. You want that system if you've got three out of four elders that are going squirrely. Then that looks pretty good. But I'll say one last thing here. On that, culture beats governance every single time. Okay? Culture always trumps governance. Governance is important. But if you have a cantankerous culture of liberalism or of fighting or bickering or factions, no style of church governance can stop that. And if you have a culture of loving people well and unity and a commitment to shared understanding of the Bible, you almost can't screw that up with any kind of governance. And that's why we talk about culture here. Culture trumps rules always. The Scottish parliamentarian Andrew Fuller said, if you let me write the songs of a nation, I don't even care who writes its laws. The laws are irrelevant if I'm in people's heads. Okay? The laws of Canada don't matter nearly as much as Taylor Swift lyrics matter. Okay? For example. But she has more authority than the laws of Canada because the laws of Canada don't get into people's hearts like music and culture does. Culture always wins. And that's something for everybody in this room. 
You are part of a church culture at Trinity. Okay? And that culture is either going to build up something that's better than this for our grandchildren, or we're tearing it down. Okay? Culture always trumps rules. Let's remember that, the way we interact with each other. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for these discussions. I want to thank you that uh, these discussions are so free-flowing and they go uh, where our minds are at and where our hearts are at. And I want to thank you for that and I pray that that would continue. And Lord, as we think about the future, as we think about what we're building and what's happening here and uh, how governance works and how churches relate to one another and uh, how decisions get made, Lord, we understand that because we are sinful people, we will always get things wrong. And no, uh, no constitution, no form of rules, no bylaws uh, can keep sin out of the camp. Lord, but your spirit can. And uh, we ask for a special dose of your spirit to keep sin out of our camp. Lord, help us to be quick to repent when we bring dishonor to your name, when we bring dishonor to uh, your bride, when we bring dishonor to each other. Lord, forgive us. I pray that we would be quick to settle accounts. I pray that we would be people who are in your word, who are committed to your word, and that we would build a culture that is uh, so joyful, so happy from the pit of our stomach, and so confident in your word. Lord, and that we love each other so well that those little weeds will never be permitted to grow. And when they appear, Lord, help us to weed them out quickly. Help us to build a culture here that is enduring and that will honor you most importantly. And I pray that each one would take their spot in that. I pray that you'd be with us this morning as well as we move to corporate worship. Lord, help us to honor you. Feed us through your word, through music, through prayer. And I pray that we would go and make a difference out in our different spheres in the week to come. Amen.